I invite you to open your Bibles with me one more time to the book of Jeremiah. Today marks the 22nd and final sermon in our study of this great book of the Bible. Many have asked where we'll be going next in the Bible. And my plan after Easter is to go back to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Philippians, to something a lot shorter and quite a bit brighter. But we are not going there quite yet. Instead, there is one more part of Jeremiah I want to focus on today. And this, in fact, is the brightest and most encouraging part of the whole book. Now, perhaps you are surprised to know that there even is a bright part to the book of Jeremiah. But it is true, and it is right in the center of this really long book. It is a four-chapter section from Jeremiah chapter 30 to Jeremiah chapter 33. This four-chapter section is often called the Book of Consolation, and it is right in the center of the book. We won't be able to go through everything in all four chapters. We're going to focus on the end of Jeremiah chapter 31, but I want to start in chapter 30 and just try to help us get a feel for what's in these four chapters, this so-called book of consolation. So look at Jeremiah chapter 30, and we're going to pick up right in verse 1 at the beginning of this section. So Jeremiah 30, verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So you can see the section starts with another call to write down the words that God is giving to Jeremiah. But did you notice how verse 3 begins? This will not be the last time you see this exact phrase. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, I've been looking at that phrase. You can find that outside of Jeremiah. I found it six times in the rest of the Old Testament. But this is clearly one of Jeremiah's favorite things to say. He says this same phrase 15 times in the book. And if you look at most of them, what comes right after those words are words of terrible judgment. So, for example, in Jeremiah 7, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when God will turn this one valley into a valley of slaughter. Or in Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. That's the way it is most of the time, except for in these four chapters, Jeremiah 30 to 33. He uses the same phrase, five times, and in every, time, in every case, it's incredibly encouraging news right after he says it. Just like this, Jeremiah 30, verse 3, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, and when I will bring them back to the land. <clears throat> but there are also two things I want to point out about this good news. Because think of chapter 30. Do you remember what's in chapter 29? We spent two weeks in chapter 29. Do you remember what it is? You could look at the heading, maybe. Chapter 29 says this is the letter to the exiles. Okay. 
And chapter 30 obviously comes right after it as you're reading the book. Okay. Now that letter to the exiles, what did Jeremiah say in that letter? Do you remember? He told them, you need to settle down, build homes, get married, have babies, plant gardens, right? Why? Because he told them in the letter, you're going to be there in exile the rest of your life, more or less. Okay? You're going to be there for 70 years. But then, as you're reading the book, you go to the very next chapter, and what do you see? These words, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people and bring them back to the land. Yeah, the second thing I want to point out is that this promise is almost the same thing that I read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So what's said in Jeremiah chapter 30 is not actually completely new. Moses himself predicted this way back, like hundreds and hundreds of years before, that one day after the people had been kicked out of the land, God would bring them back and make them more prosperous and more numerous than they had ever been. Now, to get a feel for the chapters, though, you have to keep reading at least in another few verses. Because look at verse 4, Jeremiah 30, verse 4. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic and of terror and of no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. So can you feel the difference between those two things? I mean, it's hard to miss that. Verse 3, it is a promise of what God will do one day. And then suddenly it's like you're back to reality. Judgment is falling in Jeremiah's day. Judah is falling. This is a time of panic. That is unparalleled. But then look at verse 7 again and just keep reading. Look at verse 7 again. Alas, that day is so great there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then it just continues, I'm going to bring you back and I will save you. Okay? So this is the way all four chapters go. It's just constantly words of incredible hope and mercy, but then there's these like sprinkles of judgment. But the dominant theme throughout all four chapters is mercy and hope. And to see that that's the case and that's how you're supposed to feel when you read them, you can just go ahead to Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to show you something interesting in verse 23. Jeremiah 31, verse 23. This is where I think you get the feel of the book. Like, what are you, how are you supposed to feel about all this? Jeremiah 31, verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and its cities, when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill, and Judah and all its cities will dwell there together, the farmers, those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. And look at what Jeremiah says in verse 26. At this, I awoke, and I looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. 
You catch that? Apparently, a lot of these words, maybe all of those two chapters, were in a dream to Jeremiah. And did you notice how those words made him sleep? Because my sleep was pleasant to me. That is the feel of all four chapters. Now I want to get to the heart of our study. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, break down, overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. So again, you see that phrase? Behold, the days are coming. Again, incredibly good news. God will restore the people and the land, just like God promised in the first chapter to break down and overthrow, so God will make sure to build and to plant. Now verse 29. In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Do you follow that? That is a proverb, okay? You're not supposed to be thinking only about sour grapes, okay? What happens when you eat sour grapes? Apparently, I usually throw them away, but, if, but apparently, what would happen? Your teeth would be set on edge, you would, your lips would pucker, whatever. Okay? There's this proverb going around in Jeremiah's day, and what are they saying? It was our ancestors who ate the sour grapes, in other words, who sinned, and who's getting affected by it? We are. <clears throat> That's what was being said. And you can understand how the people in the exile would think that. I mean, our ancestors have been sinning for hundreds of years, and we're the ones who are getting the consequences for what they've done. But notice what Jeremiah says. He says, in the future, people aren't going to say this anymore. Instead, it's going to be clear that God will hold every single person accountable for his or her sins. Each person matters and each choice matters. Everyone will die for his own sin. And then this leads into the most important text in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive 
their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the best news in the book of Jeremiah. The covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai had been broken. Israel had entered a covenant relationship with the Lord. Like marriage, God was their husband, but Israel had rebelled for over 700 years. The the covenant was broken, and the curses of the covenant fell on the people in Jeremiah's lifetime. But against that, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people, and it won't be like the old covenant. Now, in the new covenant, what will God do? God will not write his laws on tablets of stone. Instead, God will write his laws on the very hearts of his people. You see, the real problem with the old covenant was not that it was bad in itself. The problem was that the people were bad. Sin, and Jeremiah actually says this in the same kind of language in Jeremiah 17. He says, sin has been engraved on the tablet of your heart. That was the fundamental problem with the old covenant. Sin was engraved in their hearts, and so they were continually unfaithful to their husband, to the Lord. But in the new covenant, God promises to change the very hearts of his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. In the old covenant, very few of the people in the community actually knew the Lord. This has been a dominant theme in Jeremiah. We see it again and again that even though the people in his day knew a lot about the Lord, they did not know the Lord. They did not have a relationship of trust and love with the Lord. But in the new covenant, all the members of the covenant will know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. In those days, you won't have to go around telling the other people in the covenant, know the Lord. You really need to know the Lord. Why won't you have to say that? Jeremiah says, because they will all know the Lord. And the greatest part of the new covenant, which is really the foundation for everything, is the last word of promise in verse 34, when God says this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In the old covenant, there was a constant reminder of sin. The same sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again. But in the new covenant, God would make a way for his people's sins to be fully and forever forgiven. And though God would obviously not like completely forget, like you know, God would know what people had done in the past, God promises I will not remember your sins against you. This is some of the best news in Jeremiah and indeed in the whole Bible. And if we wonder how serious God is about these things, look at verse 35, the next verses. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that it's 
waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. And thus says the Lord, <clears throat> if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord. And then he describes them. And look at the last line of the chapter. The city will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. God is absolutely committed to fulfill all of his promises. And when he does, it will not just be the hearts of his people that will be made new. It will be the whole land. And God will rebuild Jerusalem in such a way that it will never be overthrown again. Now, in its own context, this is really clear and very encouraging, right? Let me just think about a couple of the differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. The New Covenant will be unbreakable. It's as unlikely to be broken as it is for the sun to stop shining or for the moon to fall from space. The New Covenant will be transformative. In other words, God will actually change the hearts of the people in the New Covenant so that they will actually love God and trust him and obey him. God will write his laws in their heart. The new covenant will be personal and all-encompassing. Right? Each person in it will know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest, young, old, man, woman. Each person in the covenant will have a relationship of trust and love with the Lord. And this will be true of all the people in the covenant. They will all know me. The new covenant will bring about full and final forgiveness of sins. And it will ultimately lead to the renewal of the land and of Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem is made fully new, it will never be overthrown again. Okay. This is what you can see in that text, in its own context. Okay. It's all clear and encouraging. But, but as you move forward in the Bible, and you start to think about how this relates to our day, like into the church, for example, we, ha we have to ask questions about this. Like, what happened with these promises? Do you think those promises have been fulfilled? What do you think? Do you think they have been fulfilled? Have they all been fulfilled? Are they completely fulfilled? Okay. When and how does the new covenant get started? Because from the standpoint of Jeremiah, it was down the road, right? The days are coming when I will make a new covenant. Well, when? How would it get started? And for the vast majority of us here today who are Gentiles, we might also ask, what exactly is my relationship to those promises and to that covenant? Because I kept seeing Israel and Judah. Right, in those verses. These are the kinds of questions that are really good questions. Have you thought about them? Okay. These are also the kinds of questions that take more like hours than minutes to answer in detail. 
Okay, so my comments will be limited today, but I would encourage you to take what I say today and to think, to talk about these things with others. This is, these are great questions. And to read, among other things, one really good book on this topic. Okay? I'm not sure exactly who wrote the book, but you can look it up online by this title. It is called The Book of Hebrews. Okay? It is in a series that I love called The New Testament. Okay? <laughs> you, you can find it. It's free. Okay? And it will help you significantly with this topic. But as far as what I can cover today, <clears throat> I want to first point us to something that Jesus himself said about the new covenant. That's where I want to start, okay? It was something Jesus said the night before he died. He was with his disciples for a final meal, celebrating the Passover together, which was a time when they would rehearse how God had rescued them from Egypt. After the meal was over, what did Jesus do? And what did he say? This is how the story is told in the Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus took a cup, or Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink of it, all of you. Why? In Matthew it says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> okay, in Luke's account of the same story, we hear of the new covenant even more clearly. And by the way, how many times is the new covenant, by, by the words new covenant, mentioned in the Old Testament? You have any idea? The phrase new covenant is used in one passage in the whole Old Testament. You know you have any idea where it is? Jeremiah 31, right? Okay. So listen to this from, from Luke. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay. When God established the covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai, the old covenant, Moses took the blood of an animal and he tossed it on the people and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Okay. What is absolutely clear in this story of the Last Supper is that Jesus saw that it would be through the shedding of his own blood that the new covenant would be instituted. Jesus understood that his own death would establish the new covenant, that his own blood would be the blood of the covenant. He did not offer an animal sacrifice for us. He became the sacrifice himself, and he knew exactly what he was doing before he died. He said before he died, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is being poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins, which is the greatest promise of Jeremiah 31. So we can say this for sure. The new covenant has been established through the blood of Jesus so that, as you read the New Testament, so that all who trust in Jesus already receive the full and final forgiveness of their sins. 
So you and I, even though most of us are not of Jewish descent, are members of the new covenant through Jesus. We are in Christ, and therefore we are heirs with Christ of these promises. Jesus has made it possible for us to truly know the Lord, to have new hearts that love the Lord. You do not have the same heart you used to have. Jesus has made it possible for us to experience the greatest blessing of all, the full and final forgiveness for all the bad stuff we've ever done. Now, all of those things are clear and are typically agreed upon. But when it comes to how exactly all of the promises about Israel and Judah will be fulfilled, there is less agreement and much more discussion. (laughs) And that is okay. Christians can disagree on how all of this will work out in the future. God will do what God wants to do. And trust me, it will all be really good. And we're all going to be really happy. (laughs) Okay? Even if your own take was wrong, you'll be really happy. Okay? But to give us just one helpful way to think about some of this, I want to draw from something I read this week and to summarize it briefly for us. Okay? There's a really good commentary on Jeremiah by a guy named Christopher Wright. And he suggests we should look at the fulfillment of these promises at three levels or across three horizons. I found this pretty helpful, and so I just wanted to try to put some of it in my own words, and maybe it'll be helpful for you, okay? The first level of fulfillment, or horizon one, has to do with what happened not long after Jeremiah died, okay? Do you know what happened after 70 years of exile, okay? After 70 years, God did bring his people back to the land, from exile. The walls of the city were rebuilt. There was also a new temple built in Jerusalem. You can read about that in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. And the Jewish people continued to live in the land for a long time. That new temple stood for hundreds of years in Jerusalem until after the time of Jesus. So in some ways, the promises of Jeremiah not just in Jeremiah 31, but throughout the book, were fulfilled to some degree in that return from exile. But what everyone has to agree is that that return did not fulfill everything. Everybody agrees on that. I mean, think about it. Many of the Jews who came back, they actually did forsake their idols, and they turned to the Lord, but many of them did not. In addition, there was definitely no restoration to the former glory that they had had. And and there was certainly no restoration of the throne of David and someone sitting on the throne of David. So this is where you have to look to a second level or horizon two. And this has to do with what Jesus, what has to do with Jesus and what God is doing now through Jesus. Even in the church today. Jesus, as we saw, clearly saw that the shedding of his own blood would initiate the new covenant. His death has led to all of those who are connected to him getting at least 
the first taste of the blessings of the new covenant, especially the forgiveness of our sins. These blessings were tasted first by Jesus' own followers, his disciples, and then at Pentecost and in the early church by massive amounts of Jewish believers, and then through them, these blessings have come to us who had no right to them based on our ethnicity. But what everyone should agree about is that we still have not seen the final fulfillment of all of these promises in Jeremiah. So this is where you have to look to the third level or the third horizon, which has to do with what God will still do through Jesus in the days to come. And again, people can disagree about how exactly all of this will play out. But what is clear is that Jesus is coming again and that when he comes, it will lead to the ultimate restoration of the land and the arrival of a new and better Jerusalem, which will never be overthrown. Jesus' arrival will lead not just to the forgiveness of sins, but to the full eradication from sin in the whole world. It will lead to the dawning of a kingdom that will never be shaken, over which Jesus reigns in righteousness over both Jew and Gentile together in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, in my own understanding, based on what we read earlier in Romans 11, I, I think that Jesus' return for us will also lead to many, many Jewish people finally turning in faith to their Messiah. I think that's what Paul was saying when he said in Romans, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be God's covenant with them when he takes away their sins. Okay. Now, I hope that that discussion has been helpful, maybe gives you some things to think about as you study God's word on your own and together. But as we finish up this study of the new covenant, I want to close by just drawing out two very simple implications for our lives from what we've seen today. I want to highlight two things that ought to characterize everybody who's in the new covenant. The first is thankfulness. We are the most undeserving people. No matter how we explain the relationship of Gentiles, like most of us, to these promises, what is clear is that we have no right to these things on our own. We have no special claim on any of these promises. And this is how Paul describes us, if you're Gentile, in Ephesians 2. He says, we used to be separated from God, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We have no special claim on God or these promises. We are unworthy of such gifts, and yet we are already tasting the greatest blessings that have ever been promised. God is our God. We are his people. We have been given new hearts born from above. God has written his law on our hearts. We know the Lord, and we get to be part of a people who truly know the Lord. 
And best of all, all our sins are gone. This should lead us to be the most thankful and joyful people <coughs> on the planet. And the second thing <coughs> that should mark every new covenant member is anticipation. Again, no matter how we explain like how exactly the new covenant relates to us or how it will be fulfilled in the future, what is clear is that the best is yet to come. We still wait today for the return of the king. We wait for the day when there'll be no more sin and no more sinning. For the day when the new Jerusalem will arrive, when the land will be set free, and when we will be finally and forever home. This should lead us to be the most hope-filled people on earth because we've already tasted of the world to come. We've been given the spirit. Our sins are gone. We know the Lord already. Maybe not as fully as we will know him, but we already truly know him. We have already tasted of the age to come. And so we should be the most hope-filled people. And so with eager longing, we wait, we endure, we persevere. And we wait for that day when it won't be said anymore, behold, the days are coming. We wait for the day when it will finally be said, behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray together. Father, would you stir up our gratitude and strengthen our hope. Let us, as your people, be truly grateful. Help us to see what we have in Jesus who shed his blood for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, would you stir us up with hope. And I, and I pray this especially for those who might be suffering, who might be going through trials and afflictions. I pray that these words will strengthen their hope, that we together as your people may endure with thankfulness and with anticipation for that announcement that the dwelling place of God is now with man. For that announcement, behold, I am making all things new. Give us a hunger and thirst for that day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.